President Trump makes the trip to New York in order to be arraigned on charges that he paid hush money to a porn star and to a former playmate. We have plenty of other stories to cover this morning as we start with a brand new edition of a program called Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Some other stories that we're going to take a look at today. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared on 60 Minutes and the left loses its mind. Democrat Senator Joe Manchin accuses President Biden of misusing legislation passed by Congress. And the mobocracy of the world threatens to undo civil discourse. So I hope you'll sit back and enjoy the program. We've got uh, about an hour to go here this morning. For those of you who don't know, for the past uh, 22 years or so, I was hosting a radio program called Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, and it started out as a show called Top of the Morning. It was then a show called uh, Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam, which it was for a number of years. And that show wrapped up on Friday when the producer of the show retired. And so now we're switching over to having a live show on the website, Dr. Tony Beam, you can go to drtonybeam.com, which you already know that. If you're there watching the show live now, uh, you can, you're actually listening to it via YouTube. And if you're watching the show this morning, it's live on Facebook and also live on YouTube. There will be a podcast that will be uploaded a little bit later on. And if you're searching for it, again, the name of the podcast is Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. I, I want to talk about that for a second because the name really does suggest what we're going to be talking about here. There's so much false narrative. There's so many, I should say, false narratives in the political world today. In fact, people on the right, people on the left are guilty of putting out false statements and false narratives about things that are incredibly important to the history and to the future of our country. And what I'm going to try to do is check a lot of different sources uh, I'm going to try to be as informed as I can, and I'm, I'm going to report to you what I believe is the truth about big stories of the day, and we're going to inject into that a biblical worldview. That is what God's Word has to say about these issues, because honestly, it's the, the truth can be discerned if we realize that there's something at, such as objective truth. You know, a lot of people think truth is subjective. That is, truth is whatever you think it is. You have your truth. I have my truth. And, of course, we know logically that that's impossible because truth is what corresponds with the facts. I mean, it's either raining outside or it isn't. Uh, the sun is shining or it's nighttime. I mean, those things are not up for debate. They're objectively true based on the facts that are at hand. And once what we say corresponds with those facts, we have the truth. And that's what we're going to try to do here every day if you listen to this podcast. We're going to go for about an hour um, or if you're listening live this morning. And we'll be doing this from 7.30 to 8.30 every morning, and we'll see how it goes. All right, I want to get started this morning talking about President Trump is going to be traveling to New York to be arraigned. In fact, he's leaving today, according to fresh reports. He's going to be spending the night at Trump Tower, and then he'll be going to the courthouse in New York about 11 o'clock tomorrow 
uh, to be charged with as many as 30 different charges in connection with what is likely going to be two payments that he allegedly made to cover up affairs. He's accused, of course, the one that's the most famous, of paying $130,000 in hush money to cover up an affair that was with Stormy Daniels right before the 2016 election. In other words, right before people were going to vote, it looked like the story was going to break, and the president stepped in, uh, allegedly, and paid $130,000 through Michael Cohen, his attorney, who, by the way, was back in 2018 convicted of election fraud plus a bunch of other charges. Um, and he's going to be the key witness against President Trump, which is interesting um, since he's already been convicted of perjury along with election fraud. So it's going to be interesting to see how well the jury likes the main witness against the president being somebody that's a convicted liar. But this case is going to go forward. And the other case is a $150,000 payment that was made um, also uh, to someone that allegedly the president had an affair with. It was a playmate, 1998, in fact, playmate of the year, Karen McDougal. And so this, this case goes back a ways. And we're not even sure, we can't be positive that the McDougal case is going to have any bearing on this. The reason is because we don't know what the charges are yet. Now, there's a big debate out there. In fact, today, Democrats, the New York Times in particular, are ranting and raving about the fact that Republicans are dismissing the charges and calling them a witch hunt or calling them political theater or calling them totally politically motivated when we don't even know what the charges are yet. Grand jury proceedings are secret, and so we can't know what the charges are until the grand jury uh, has, well, well, the grand jury's already voted and put out the charges. We can't know what they are until they're unsealed, and they should be unsealed at the arraignment. But what's interesting is if you go back and look at the New York Times, over and over and over again in this particular story, they've pretty much commented on the fact that President Trump is going to be arrested. They've comment, commented on the fact that he's guilty of paying the hush money. They've commented on the fact that he's, in fact, guilty of having an affair, and none of that has been proven yet. It sounds to me like the New York Times agree, agrees with Nancy Pelosi, who put out a tweet saying the president was going to have his opportunity in court to prove his innocence. Well, actually, uh, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's not that the president has to prove his innocence. It's that the state has to prove he's guilty. Why is that? Because when a person is charged with a crime in America, they are presumed to be innocent until they're proven guilty. So the president's not going into court to prove his innocence. The president is going into court to see if the prosecutor can prove that he's guilty because he walks in with the presumption of innocence. So we, we don't know how far this is going to go. People have speculated, and in fact, the New York Times has speculated, that these charges are uh, going to include, they're going to be raised to the level of being a federal offense, that is being a felony, by suggesting that the hush money payments were campaign uh, contributions that were misused or not used in the way uh, that the campaign had stated that they're going to be used. But the underlying charge is going to be the misuse or misallocation or the misstatement, we, we should say, of business funds. It's fraudulently, fraudulently, uh, fraud, well, I'm having trouble with that word today, fraudulently 
showing a business expense to be one thing when actually it was for something else. So in other words, according to the prosecution, uh, President Trump paid Michael Cohen the $130,000 plus some extra money to cover his expenses and a bonus for Michael Cohen. I think it was $30,000, something in that neighborhood for taking care of this for him but that that money was not a business expense as it was listed because it was listed under legal fees, um, and there was nothing legal about it. Nothing, No consultation or anything was done for this money, according to the prosecu- prosecution. The money was actually used to pay Stormy Daniels to cover up the affair, which President Trump, by the way, now says never took place. Now, we again, he's presumed innocent, of everything before he walks into the as he walks into the courtroom, and in, in, in fact, he's presumed innocent during the trial, and everybody needs to keep that in mind. And there's a couple of things that can be true here at the same time, and I think we need to to think about this. The first thing is it's possible that these charges are more serious than we know because we don't know what they are. And to suggest, but but to say that they are politically motivated, even though we don't know what they are, I think both of those things are true. Regardless of what the charges turn out to be, I think it's there's no question that they're politically motivated. How could they not be? Look look at the the DA, the person that's bringing the charges in Manhattan. It's Alvin Bragg. Who is Alvin Bragg? Well, he's a Soros-backed DA. He's a person who ran for office under the idea that he was going to um, lessen the prosecution of major crimes. He was going to come up with different sentencing recommendations, even for people who have committed uh, major crimes in the city of New York, because he believes there's too many people going to jail. There's too many people being prosecuted when they, they should be given a second chance. And yet he's going after a low-level misdemeanor charge of, against President Trump. At least that's what, that's what legal scholars think it would have to be in the misuse of or the mislabeling of business funds. Um, and then the only way he can elevate it, as we talked about, is if it becomes a federal election commission uh, violation and the statute of limitations has already run out on that. Now, the argument in New York is that it's, it's the, the statute of limitations doesn't apply unless a person is actually living in New York. So it only applies for the amount of time that they're present. And President Trump has been at Mar-a-Lago down in Florida, and so that is the, the way that they're getting around the statute of limitations. At least that's what's assumed that the charges will do once they're opened up. So can we say at the same time, we don't know what these charges are going to be because we don't. I mean, there have been leaks. There's been speculation. There's been all kinds of talk about it. But until the grand jury charges are actually unsealed when the president is indicted tomorrow, then we can't know for sure what those charges are going to be. And once we see them, there may be something there that's more serious than we thought. There may be something there that looks like it can be proven. Most legal scholars so far say that the the prosecutor in this case, the DA, is going to have a a really hard time convincing jurors that there's a crime been committed here, Uh, that President Trump did anything except try to cover up 
um, the evidence of an affair in order to protect his family, to not embarrass his children, to not embarrass his wife. And the president's even saying, hey, um, you know, we're... I'm, I'm not admitting that there's been any affair. I think it's a false accusation that Stormy Daniels was sim simply looking for money, but I didn't want to go through the embarrassment of the accusation going in uh, that, that would hurt my wife, that would hurt my children, didn't have anything to do with the election. Uh, the president's also going to claim, likely, the way Jonathan Edwards did. If you remember, Jonathan Edwards paid money to cover up the fact that he fathered a child outside of marriage, and that the jury in that case was not able to convict him for the same defense. Uh, Hunter, uh, it, it was uh, it almost said Hunter Biden, Jonathan Edwards with with or, or with John Edwards. It was a case where uh, he was he, it, it was very similar in that money was being paid to cover up an illicit activity by John Edwards going into an election. But some of the elements of the case are different. Uh, the key witness against John Edwards was someone who was considered to be a flip-flopper, somebody that was considered to be a bit mentally unstable. And I think the same argument could be made for Michael Cohen. I mean, a lot of this is going to turn on the fact, I believe, if the jury believes the witnesses. I mean, that's, that's the way it works in a trial, right? I mean, if, if, if a person's accused of a crime and the jury comes in, they hear the evidence, if they don't believe the witnesses, the main witness that the prosecution has, then the person is usually found not guilty. Is it possible that the jury would hear Michael Cohen and see him as an opportunist, somebody who's just out to hurt President Trump because he feels like President Trump turned his back on him, somebody who uh, has already been convicted of perjury, somebody who has already been convicted of election fraud himself? I mean, is that do, does that sound like the kind of witness that the prosecution would like to go into a courtroom? No. I mean, they want a witness. They want somebody whose credibility is through the roof. And instead, they're going into court with somebody's credibility is dwelling somewhere down on the floor or maybe the sublevel. So this is going to be a difficult case for the prosecution to win. It's certainly not a slam dunk. Now, here comes the next question. What is happening with President Trump in relation to these charges? In other words, is, is President Trump in any trouble? Is this causing him problems? Is he, um, is he being hurt in his presidential campaign? Well, um, I, I tell you, all we need to do is take a look at the polls and take a look at the money that's being raised. First of all, let's look at the polls. Now, the president's been trending ahead. There were polls back at the end of the year and going into the first, at the end of last year, going into the first part of this year that suggested that Ron DeSantis was either even or even slightly ahead of President Trump in the polling when it comes to the Republican primary. And of course, President Trump is an announced candidate. He's the first candidate to announce. Ron DeSantis is not in the race yet. He's not going to announce, likely, until the Florida legislature wraps up its session in May, which means it's going to be likely late May or perhaps even June to mid-June, early June to mid-June, before DeSantis is officially into the race. So can you, can you state equivocally this far out that President Trump's lead is going to hold? We, we don't know. There's a lot of things that can happen between now and the Republican primary. But one thing we know right now, President Trump is getting a boost 
from being indicted. Over the weekend, or since the indictment came out, I should say, he raised $5 million for his campaign. In fact, just over $5 million, which is really pretty much incredible. I mean, the fact that uh, a criminal charge is being brought against him, and that's helping, not hurting his campaign, because people believe that he's being falsely accused, he's being falsely charged, that this is a political attack against somebody that the Biden administration wants to discredit as a viable candidate running against him. Now, there are others who say, in fact, that what the Democrats want is for Donald Trump to be the nominee because they believe they can beat him again. Um, if, if that's what they believe, I, I really think that they're walking out on the plank here. I mean, I just just think about it. Can, can President Trump beat Joe Biden if you have a rematch? I think he certainly could. Uh, I don't think it's a slam dunk if he becomes the candidate. Now, right now, the president, if you look at national polling when it comes to the to people outside of the Republican Party, the president's got a reputation problem. But he overcame that before. It's certainly possible that he could overcome it again. But in any case, um, I, I, the idea that this is hurting the president, I think, has been put to bed. When you can raise $5 million just off of the indictment, I mean, there's rumors out there that the president's going to take his mugshot and he's going to auction it off for some crazy price, and that's going to raise money for the campaign. I mean, how surreal is this? How incredible. We've got a president, a former president of the United States, being charged with a crime. I mean, not since Ulysses S. Grant went through Washington riding too fast in his carriage. Has a president been arrested or charged with anything? And here's President Trump being charged with a crime in the state of New York. So it's pretty incredible already. But the fact that it's incredible, um, it, it doesn't, I mean, most things associated with Donald Trump are, are pretty incredible. And the outcome of this could serve to help him a lot more than it hurts him. Now, we're going to have a lot more to say about this as the charges are unsealed, because as we know more about it, we're going to be able to talk about the validity of the charges. I mean, if the New York Times is right, and they're, they and CNN and I think a couple of other outlets are reporting that we're talking about 30 different charges. Now, when you think about every instance of moving the money around being a separate charge, and you're talking about hush money payments to two separate people, assuming that Karen McDougal is going to uh, factor into this at all, then you could see why there would be up to 30 charges brought against the president. But we don't know what they are, and so we need to wait until they're unsealed, and then we'll get deeper into whether or not we think that uh, President Trump can be affected by this or even convicted. Right now, without the if, if the felony charges are not include, included, if Bragg is not pushing this to be a felony, which would be a stretch by any in, in anybody's imagination, if he's only looking at the mislabeling or misuse of, of business records, and that's the only charge, those are misdemeanor charges that could have jail time. But that would mean that a judge would have to look at it and say that this is a first offense, even if he was convicted, it would likely be a fine and possibly probation. But we're a long way from that because we're a long way from President Trump being convicted. Now, the question is, what kind of response is going to come 
from his ardent supporters. Uh, there's going to be a protest outside the courthouse tomorrow. Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be at the protest, and that's creating a lot of headlines, the fact that she's going to stand outside the courthouse tomorrow with other protesters. Uh, they're, they're not going to allow any activity in the courthouse tomorrow. There's only going to be one thing happening, at least in the morning, and that's going to be President Trump is going to go in. And by the way, don't expect to see him handcuffed. Don't expect if you're more to the left and you're waiting for that moment when the president's going to be frog-marched across the, uh, the street into the courthouse and everybody's going to get to see that. That's not the way this is going to go down. The president is going to voluntarily go into the courthouse. It'll take about 30 minutes max. Uh, he'll be fingerprinted. He'll take his mugshot. He'll stand before the judge. The charges will be unsealed and, and he'll, they'll be read and the president will plead not guilty. Um, and then he's going to be released. Secret Service is going to be with him the whole time. And so that's going to be it until the trial. The president won't likely go back to court until the trial, if there is a trial, if there's not some kind of deal or if there's not something worked out or the charges dismissed. The lawyers for President Trump think that the charges should be just, just, just dismissed, just dropped altogether. And so they're going to make that motion. No way this judge, by the way, uh, this judge has seen President Trump before. Uh, the judge presided over uh, the Trump business uh, when uh, the, the Trump business enterprises got uh, fined a whole bunch of money. Um, well, I say a whole bunch. It was, when it comes to fines, it was not all that much. Um, and for the business practices, and Trump's business manager ended up going to jail. It's the same judge, and that's why the president has actually come out and slammed the judge. Now, I guarantee you his lawyers don't particularly think that's a good idea. You don't want to go after the judge, the person who's going to preside over the trial uh, of, of whether you're going to be declared guilty or innocent. Uh, you don't want to get the judge ticked off at you ahead of time. But I guess President Trump figures there's more political capital in going after the judge than there is a danger of the judge not uh, not being impartial. I I don't see, uh, as far as being impartial, um, I think in the in the state of New York, it's going to be difficult for President Trump to get a fair trial. I think his lawyers are going to try to get a change of venue, and I think that's going to be denied. And this judge is not going to dismiss the charges that have been voted on by a grand jury and brought by the Manhattan DA. All right, we talked about the fact that Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene is going to be going to New York uh, to be part of this protest. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that she appeared on 60 Minutes last night. Now, Mar she is a champion to people that are strong Trump supporters, and even, even some who are not necessarily Trump supporters really like Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's very, very popular in her district in Georgia. And if you remember back when she was being stripped of committee assignments and she was all these things were happening to her because of, of things she had said previously about QAnon, uh, she was accused of saying that Nancy Pelosi needed a bullet to the head. She was accused of uh, saying uh, some very violent things, some very... Uh, far, far right things that got her in a lot of trouble with Congress, and yet she's risen. She overcame those things, which, which is a fascinating story when you think about it. I mean, the fact that most people wrote her off 
as being toast, that her political career, because of all these accusations, was essentially over, and all the controversy over whether she should even be serving in Congress. And now, because partly because she supported Kevin McCarthy for Speaker, she is on two of the most powerful committees in Congress. Uh, she's going around. She's a solid gold fundraiser. Um, everywhere she goes, um, people flock to her. That and because she's very uh, obviously she's, she's very um, choicey, I should say, in where she goes, where she appears, places where she knows that she's going to have a lot of support. And she's but she's become a rock star in the Republican Party. I mean, there, there's no question about it. And she was on 60 Minutes last night, and the left lost its mind. Before Leslie Stahl asked her a single question, but when the left found out that she was going to be on 60 Minutes, and it could have been that it was all taped before the left found out about it, but progressives just attacked 60 Minutes for giving her a platform. And Leslie Stahl went after her last night, but I think Representative Green pretty much held her own. She appeared over the weekend. The left protested. She claimed that uh, one of the things that Leslie Stahl asked her right out of the gate was, did you style yourself after President Trump? In other words, the way that you approach politics is President Trump your model. And she said, no, I, I didn't style myself after President Trump, but also I can see how people draw those similarities. We both come from the same industry, construction, and I also have a plain speaking style, and so does he. Now, that's interesting uh, because there, I, I really hadn't thought about the construction similarities um, as far as Marjorie Taylor Greene and President Trump, but she and her husband bought her father's construction business which evidently was doing okay, but was not meteoric in terms of the amount of money that it was it was making. And she and her former husband now, she's, she's now divorced, but she and her former husband turned that construction company into a real moneymaker. She also got uh, deeply involved in physical fitness. She got into Pilates. She got into um, uh, working out these intense workouts that she says gave her a lot of confidence, and she bought into a fitness center. She sold that interest. Bottom line, she's worth about $11 million, according to the 60 Minutes story. And Leslie Stahl did something last night that I thought was pretty interesting. She, start, she started out by uh, asking at least the part that they aired. She asked Marjorie Taylor Greene, what about all these names that you're called? You're called crazy, a Q clown. You're called Looney Tunes, unhinged, a moron. What do you think about these things? And of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene said, "Look, I, that's it. Sounds like my Twitter trolls. I don't pay any attention to that. I don't uh, concern myself with that. Um, I just, I just move along. I just keep going. I." I, I do what I do. I do what I think is right. I do what I think the people in my district want. I mean, she was she defended herself and didn't appear to be very ruffled when Leslie Stahl threw out all those comments. Well, later on, Leslie Stahl accused her of using vitriolic language. In other words, language that was very volatile, very hurtful. In fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that the Democrat Party was a bunch of pedophiles. And the reason she said that is she said the policies that they support are grooming children and sexualizing children, and that's what pedophiles do. So 
Leslie Stahl just was aghast by this, and let yet she began the program by talking about directly the names that Marjorie Taylor Greene were called. You know, it, it's it, what what is it when you have a sixty minutes host like Leslie Stahl looking at Marjorie Taylor Greene and saying, "How dare you say that Democrats are pedophiles?" Why is she not looking at all these people that called Marjorie Taylor Greene a moron, which is completely unacceptable in our in our culture today? I mean, you the word moron is considered to be an insult to people that have uh, mental problems. I mean, it's it it's a it's a terrible word in the culture to use. It was widely used 10, 15, 20 years ago, but today it's taboo. You can be canceled for using the word moron. Uh, you can be canceled for talking about somebody as being unhinged or looney tunes. So why is it okay for Leslie Stahl to say, to bring up the names? I mean, right out of the gate in the interview, she brings up all these names that Marjorie Taylor Greene Green is being referred to. And then when Marjorie Taylor Greene says Democrats are pedophiles, oh, you can't say that. You know that they're not pedophiles. That's that's not the case. Well, you know, okay, if, if, if it's okay for her to be referred to in such derogatory terms, now I get it. I mean, I... But believe me, I understand that it's inflammatory, highly inflammatory for Marjorie Taylor Greene to say that, quote, all Democrats or Democrats in the, the, the Democrat Party is a party of pedophiles. Um, yeah, a, a pedophile is someone who sexualizes children, and, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene went on to that to say that, someone that um, abuses children. And she, she believes that Democrat policies as related to transgender surgery for minors, related to puberty blockers for minors, re related to cross-hormone treatments for minors, she says that that amounts to being a pedophile. Now, I think that's going too far in the rhetoric. I mean, me personally, I, I don't think in the same way that we're not going to be able to have any kind of dialogue across the aisle or begin to really talk seriously about working out our problems if we resort to name-calling and things like moron, looney tunes, and unhinged, and cue clown. I mean, that's that those terms being used against Marjorie Taylor Greene are just as inflammatory as the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene would say Democrats are pedophiles. It's going to take both sides calming down that particular amount of rhetoric before we're going to be able to really have much of a conversation, um, before we're going to be able to, to sit down and try to solve some of the problems that we have. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene did say that she was asked about the debt limit, um, about the debate over raising the debt ceiling. Would Republicans cause a financial crisis and a financial disaster, as Janet Yellen has said, if they don't agree to raise the debt ceiling? And I thought that Marjorie Taylor's Green, Taylor Greene's answer to that was very good. She said, look, um, what could be a greater financial disaster than the fact that we've got a $31 trillion debt, which amounts to about $98,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States? Uh, what's a bigger threat as far as a financial catastrophe? Is it not raising the debt ceiling, or is it the fact 
that were $31 trillion in debt. She went on to say that what needs to happen is for Democrats and Republicans to figure out how to cut the debt, how to, before there can be a deal on raising the debt limit, there needs to be a deal on how to reduce the amount of deficit spending we have because we're going to eventually reach the point of no return. I mean, I, it, there, there's no way that we can not get there. And so I, I thought that answer by Marjorie Taylor Greene was, was reasonable. Uh, Republicans need to hold the line on the debt ceiling as long as possible. Now, nobody thinks that they're going to shut the government down. At least I don't think every time that, that Republicans shut the government down, um, they lose. I mean, they lose in the court of public opinion because they've got the media against them. Um, they've got uh, all these politicians come out and the media becomes the echo chamber that echoes all the criticisms and blames the whole thing on Republicans, regardless of the fact that the Democrats are controlling the Senate. And so um, I, I don't think that the Republicans will go that far, but I think they should push it as far. I, sh I think they should um, allow people to think that they would shut the government down because they need to negotiate with Democrats an opportunity to reduce the deficit, to rein in the spending, to change some of the parameters so that we're not just continually digging this tremendous hole um, that's out there. All right, uh, a couple of other things that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, did last night. She referenced the fact that she apologized for her comments about QAnon. She says that she came in contact with it in 2017, um, that she believed some of the things, and then she did her research, and she apologized. They, they actually showed a clip of her on the floor of the House apologizing to her colleagues for the QAnon comments. Um, she's made somewhat, from what Leslie Stahl says, are controversial comments. What are they? What is it to Leslie Stahl that she just can't comprehend that a person would say? Well, number one, Americans should have a, America should have a Christian government. Now, if Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene admitted that she said that, if she means we need to have a government that is governed by Old Testament law or even by the New Testament in the sense that the application directly of Christianity is put into um, effect by the government, then that, that's not what we need. But what we do need are Christians in the government, people who get elected, who have a, a Christian worldview, that then apply that Christian worldview to the law. Because what they're going to do, if they're truly believers, is they're going to bring honesty, integrity, they're going to bring a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. You know, I've talked about this golden triangle um, of, of freedom for a long time on, on my program before I switched over here uh, today to the new program with Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. I used to quote Oz Guinness where he said that freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith, and faith requires freedom. And it's, it's a triangle that is our triangle of freedom. And what is one of the key components? One of the key components is virtue. Virtue has to be about character and integrity. And where does character and integrity come from? Well, for a Christian, it's rooted and grounded in the morality of the Bible. And you don't have to come out and stand forth and say, 
okay, um, I'm, this is going to be a Christian nation by decree. This is every decision is going to line up with the Bible. You don't have to do that in order to have a Christian influence in government. You just need people who have been made new by the change that comes through Jesus Christ, who are who have a moral standard that is rooted and grounded in something that's greater than themselves. And that's what objective truth has to be. Otherwise, it's just everybody's opinion about what's right and wrong if there is no objective truth. Uh, so the next thing, she said abortion should be banned nationally. Abortion is a state's rights issue. It was a state's rights issue before uh, Roe versus Wade, and now it's a state, I mean, in terms of what limits, but yet the federal government, because of Roe versus Wade, had an overarching uh, limit on the limits that could each state could put on abortion. Once Roe versus Wade was gone, before that, it was completely up to the states, before Roe. Now that Roe is gone, it's completely up to the states again to decide what restrictions are going to go on abortion. Now, I would argue that I, I would say that I agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene that America needs a national abortion ban for this reason, because it's not women's health care that we're talking about here. We're talking about the death of unborn children. Um, it's, it's not women's reproductive care that we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the death of unborn children. And in the same way that we could never be a country that would say we can have slave states and free states, we can't make, we couldn't, we realized slavery was such a serious issue because it dealt with humanity and the way that we were going to treat human beings, that we couldn't have, be a country that allowed some states to support slavery while other states were free states. We, we had to agree about this issue. I think the same thing is true about abortion. I think there should be a national abortion ban for the same reason, because we're not talking about how money gets allocated to a state. We're not talking about different states' rights that one state can see one way and another state can see another way. We're talking about human rights. We're talking about the, the right of a human being to have the right to live. That's something that should be true in all 50 states if our Constitution means anything and if our Declaration of Independence means anything when it says that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are the things that our Constitution is written in order to protect. And you really can't protect liberty um, if, if you don't have life. Um, you, can't have, you can't pursue happiness if your life is not protected in the womb. So I think that's actually something that should be a national ban when it comes to protecting life. Uh, defund the FBI and immigration stops completely for four years. All right, defunding the FBI has gotten to be really popular among conservatives. Uh, I hear a lot of people talking about it. I hear some conservatives pushing back against it. They think that the FBI should be reformed, not defunded. Um, I don't think it's a good position for Republicans to be in when we have defended funding the police for how many years? I mean, this defund the police movement, it's too easy for Democrats to grab that issue and say, look, Republicans want to defund the police. They want to defund the FBI, the agency that protects us at the national level. Now, is the FBI corrupt? 
Yes. Is the, does the FBI have a lot of problems? I mean, I, I don't think we can even argue that. I mean, I think the evidence is in. There have been so many issues where the FBI has stepped outside of its bounds and the Justice Department has used them in an abusive way against the Catholic Church. I mean, there's been over and over the FBI lied to get wiretaps in the in the uh, when it comes to when it came to the Trump Russia affair that ended up being nothing. I mean, you, you you just go back and and look at what the FBI has done and the corruption that's been uncovered within the FBI, and we know there are a lot of changes that need to be made. But I don't think the solution, particularly in a year when Republicans have made great political gains by pointing out that it's the Democrats that want to defund police. You know, not even minority communities, not even a minority, uh, a majority of people in minority communities in large cities want to defund the police because they realize what that would do to them. I mean, they need the police for protection in cities that are out of control when it comes to crime. And, and cities that defund the police, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, Portland, Oregon, even Los Angeles, when you see money moving away from, from fighting crime, duh, crime picks up. Crime advances because if you don't have people out enforcing the law, you're going to have a lot more crime. I mean, it's just common sense. And Republicans have got an issue here that they can win on. It's, a, it's the right thing to do to support our police officers. And so I don't think it makes a lot of sense for us to turn around and say, okay, the, the way that we uh, fix the problem with the FBI is we just totally defund it. Now, if you want to present a case where you're going to establish a different agency, if you want to make the case that the FBI is so corrupt it can't be saved and that there needs to be another agency established, then maybe we can have that conversation. But I, I don't think just simply going defund the FBI in a campaign stump speech is going gonna, is gonna to do it. And immigration, stopping. Look, we need a comprehensive immigration plan. Uh, maybe that does mean a pause in immigration until we get it fixed. What we're doing now is insanity. I mean, we can't just have a porous southern border. It's killing us with fentanyl overdoses, the amount of drugs that are coming into the country, uh, the amount of cartel and mob activity at the border, uh, the people that are coming across the border and then disappearing into the interior of the country without even having a, a time set for them to come back to have a hearing as to whether they deserve asylum or not. I mean, we do, we just have a we have chaos. We have the record numbers of people crossing the border illegally. Until we get a hold of that, I would support having some kind of pause. In other words, we just just stop allowing people to come into the country until we come up with a plan that regulates it and makes sense. Because if we don't, I mean, we're just going to continue to have all these illegal border crossings and people coming into the country in mass, um, which eventually, I mean, you can't have a country if it doesn't have borders. You, you can't have a culture and a society if you don't have an orderly way to determine who gets to come here and who gets to stay here. Now, if we want to talk about the refugee crisis, to me, that's a different story. I mean, people that are, that are legitimately running for their lives because of persecution, um, they've been driven out of their homes, people coming from Afghanistan, 
and, and, and do they need, does the United States need to have a robust refugee program to resettle those people and to help deliver them from the circumstances that they're in because they're being chased at the threat of their own life? Absolutely. But when it comes to immigration, we, we've got to have a reasonable plan that allows people to come in the country that there's a purpose behind it. It's not just because um, we've decided to leave the border open. So I think a pause, whether it's four years or two years or a year or ever, ever how long, I think it makes sense to pause until we get that figured out. I think that's something Marjorie Taylor Greene said that makes sense. So she was on last night on 60 Minutes, and guess what? We got up this morning. The sun came up. Uh, I'm sitting here looking out the window of my dining room, and lo and behold, we've got a brand new day. The world didn't implode because Marjorie Taylor Greene was on 60 Minutes. And if you listen to the left, you would think that was going to happen. All right, another story that I mentioned at the top of the program that I want to jump on here because um, I see our time is running out a little bit. Um, I, I, I want to talk about the Biden Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act betrayal. I mean, this is pretty incredible when you have a Democrat. Now, granted, it's Joe Manchin, and who knows what Joe Manchin's going to do. I mean, is he going to run as an independent? Is he going to run as a Republican? Is he going to switch parties? Is he going to remain a Democrat? Is he going to run for governor? Is he going to run for president? Some are saying that Joe Manchin's actually thinking about launching an independent bid for the White House to be a centrist candidate to step into the 2024 presidential race. Um, I, I have no idea if that's what's going to happen. But I do know that he's being critical of President Biden because of a tendency that President Biden has for executive overreach. I mean, you know about all the debate that went into the passing of the uh, uh, the Debt Reduction Act, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was supposed to whip inflation and it was supposed to reduce the national debt by billions of dollars. Joe Manchin, in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, accurately says that the annual budgetary deficits have averaged $2.71 trillion since October of 2019. And that's since essentially, uh, and, and, and since COVID-19 began, we've added more than $8 trillion to the national debt. Now, that's, that's unbelievable. I mean, at $31 trillion, we're at 120% GDP which means it would take more than everything the United States produces every year to even make a dent in the debt. Um, folks, I, I mean, it, it's, it's serious business, and I, and I don't understand why our leaders and policymakers in Washington are not paying attention to this. Um, I, I think it's something that they should be seriously alarmed about. I mean, we, we got a story over the weekend. Social Security came out with a report saying that in 10 years, we could be facing a 23, 24% reduction in Social Security benefits. We could see Social, Social Security becoming insolvent in 10 years. So we've got that sitting out there. Plus, we got a $31 trillion de uh, debt that needs to be paid down that is, is choking our economy um, and leading to or contributing to the rise in inflation, um, and there's literally not very much being done about it. Well, here's what Senator Joe Manchin says about the Inflation Reduction Act. He says, this is from the Wall Street Journal, 
When President Biden and I spoke before Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act last summer, we agreed that the bill was designed to pay down our national debt and shore up America's energy security. It was designed to generate $738 billion in new revenue with more than $238 billion dedicated to debt reduction, the first serious piece of legislation in more than 20 years that the Congressional Budget Office estimated would have actually reduced the debt, or at least work on the deficit, the amount of deficit spending that we have that's causing the debt to skyrocket. Yet instead of implementing the law as intended, Unelected ideologues, and this is Joe Manchin coming after President Biden, unelected ideologues, bureaucrats, and appointees seem determined to violate and subvert the law to advance a partisan agenda that ignores both energy and fiscal security. Duh. Really? Senator Manchin, welcome to the party, pal. I mean, I feel like I'm watching Die Hard here when the body falls out of the top of the tower and hits the police car. And, and, you know, you've got the realization he's, it's a light bulb moment for Senator Manchin. The president lied to Congress about the intent of this bill, and now he's reallocating money. He's finding through the bureaucracy a way to move money away from what the legislation called for and move it more, move it more toward green energy and the protection of of America's uh, electronic chip industry. I mean, and look, it may be a worthy idea to try to figure out ways to make sure that the chips and the components for our technology are being manufactured in the United States or at least by friendly countries like South Korea and Japan and not China, which is where most of our uh, uh, chips come from that power our cell phones, that make our cars work. I mean, these, these electronic, these microchips are absolutely essential to our economy and our economic security, and yet we depend on China for a lot of that. So right now, according to um, uh, Joe Manchin, specifically President Biden is ignoring the law's intent to support and expand fossil energy, and they're redefining domestic energy to increase clean energy spending to potentially deficit-breaking levels. Is anybody surprised? I mean, President Biden has demonstrated maybe more than any other president a tendency to just make up the law. I mean, as the executive, he takes the executive branch and executive orders to a new level. I mean, he's not even writing executive orders about this. He's just taking law that was duly passed by Congress and rewriting it through the bureaucratic process to do something totally different than what the law was intended. And my question is, who's going to rein him in? I mean, can the courts step in? I mean, this is, in my mind, this is unprecedented. I mean, you have a president who's not following the law passed by Congress. What is the remedy for that? Can the Supreme Court step in and say, hey, you you got to knock it off. You, you've got to enforce the law that was passed, not the law that you wish was passed, which is exactly what Joe Manchin says President Biden is doing. He's acting as if Congress passed the law that he wanted, not the law that Congress agreed on. And as President of the United States, you can't do that. 
You can't just come up and say, well, you know, it's a pretty day today. Uh, I'm a leftist. I'm a progressive. They're paying the bills. They're keeping me in the White House. I think I'll just serve them by changing the law myself and going against what Congress said should be spent and spend the money the way that I want to. Well, you, you really can't do that. Ignoring the debt and deficit implications of these actions at a t as the time nears to raise the debt ceiling, according to Manchin, isn't only wrong, it's policy and political malpractice. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Now, the Wall Street Journal agrees. They've got a story today that, talk, that goes into detail about exactly how President Biden is working around the law to, in order to get what he wants without actually even coming up with executive orders. Uh, it's The title of the piece is The Biden Bait and Switch, and it, it says, This rewrite of the rules means that the real cost of the climate energy subsidies in the, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act will be far more than the $391 billion that Democrats claim when they pass the bill. Goldman Sachs now estimates that the cost is going to be $1.2 trillion over 10 years. Now, that's instead of investing in the fossil fuels and the renewable fuels that the bill calls for, the president is pouring money into clean energy and exceeding the limits of the bill by almost three, actually more than three times. $391 billion, that's what they claimed when the bill was passed. Goldman Sachs says, nope, it's going to be $1.2 trillion. Unions and progressives, according to the Wall Street Journal, are angry about the administration's one-off mineral trade agreements, which aren't being submitted to Congress and don't include stringent environmental or labor rules. Public Citizen, the left-wing lobby, warned that dangerous, dirty mining corporations that violate human rights could launder their minerals in Japan before shipping to the United States. And the Wall Street Journal correctly asked the question, what did they expect? The administration has made climate its paramount priority and knows fewer consumers will buy EVs without subsidies. So what they're doing is in, 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 as well as making these deals with foreign countries that are increasing the amount of spending that we have in the tech sector then that was not included in the Inflation Reduction Act and in addition to making those deals, they're actually upping, they're finding a way around the rules and upping the amount of subsidies that are given to people to purchase electric vehicles. And again, ladies and gentlemen, I've asked this question over and over again. How are we going to generate the power necessary when everybody starts plugging their cars in at night? California has rolling blackouts now. They can't generate the power that's needed in California for them to be able to get through a summer without rolling blackouts. How in the world are they going to be able to generate enough power when everybody has to plug their car in? By 2035, California says we're not going to allow the sales of any gasoline automobiles. We're going to be a totally electric state. Well, that's great until the power grid fails because you don't have even a fraction of the power necessary to be able to power all of these cars. Now, assuming that you know California would be a common sense uh, state with a common sense legislature, they would know this and they would be working on right now developing the uh, electric grid. 
they're not doing that. No, nowhere near. They're continuing to pass laws that, that call for more what they call clean energy, but that clean energy at every turn, including electric cars, is based on the, the power grid that is, they depend on for air conditioning and for lighting for everything else. And so, I mean, it's going to be a mess, no question. All right, uh, we're getting close to the end of the program for today, but let me just remind you of a couple of things as we wrap up. Um, we are going to be able to uh, hopefully do the program every morning, Monday through Friday from 7.30 to 8.30, and then you'll be able to download the podcast. You can go to Spotify, you can go to the iTunes store, uh, just about anywhere you can find a podcast. Just look for Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and you'll be able to download it. I also have a... Um, an email, uh, email address that I need to give to you. Let me see if I can find the address here because I'm not used to using it. I, I'm, I'm not going to use my NGU email address for the show because you can email me directly uh, to the program. It's info at drtonybeam.com. Now, there's a place on the website that you can click, and, and it'll go right to my email. You can send me a comment. And I'm going to read those um, as I kind of get used to the new format, I'm going to start reading those on the air, and we'll start having a discussion, and we can do it by email. Also, if you want to uh, send me a, a tweet, uh, if you tweet, send it to me. It'll, it'll show up on my website, uh, and I'll be able to see it during the course of the show. Uh, like I said, once I kind of get comfortable in this new format. So this is it. This is what it's going to be for um, from from now on till I guess I retire, uh, I'm going to continue to bring commentary every day and try to inject truth into the politics and political uh, into the political debates and the cultural debates that we have around us all the time. So listen, hope you have a great day. Um, I hope that you'll join me again tomorrow. Check out the podcast and check out the website. God bless you. Have a great one.